Bernay Brown is a uh, research professor at the University of Houston. She focuses primarily in the fields of empathy and vulnerability, psychological and relational fields like that. She also tends to blame other people for her problems, much like us. And she illustrates that with a story she tells at the beginning of one of her lectures. She tells a story of a time she woke up just like any other day. She walked into the kitchen, had a cup of coffee before getting into the shower. That was her typical morning routine. Everything seemed fine. But on this particular day, Bernay felt that she was dragging a little bit. And so she went into the kitchen for a second cup of coffee, something that's not typical. And when she got there, that's when everything started to go wrong. Because the cup of coffee slipped out of her hands and it shattered into a million pieces on the kitchen floor, and brown coffee splashed all over her white slacks, and well, this, this is kind of embarrassing, pink shirt. Um, I didn't plan that, I promise. This is just one of those things. Splashed all over her white slacks and her pink sweater. And the first words that immediately came out of her mouth were, dang you, Steve. Now, Steve is Bernay's husband. Steve likes to play water polo with his friends once a week, and he usually gets home about 10 p.m., but on this particular occasion, Steve didn't get home until 10.30, which meant Bernay stayed up a little bit later waiting for him, which meant she didn't get as much sleep, hence needing the second cup of coffee. Ergo, all of this is Steve's fault. Does that sound familiar to anybody? Husbands, it might sound a little familiar to you as you get blamed for things, or wives, maybe your husbands do that themselves. You know, it, it's easy. Sometimes we can jump through some rather ridiculous hoops to try and lay blame on somebody else for things that go wrong in our lives. Because blame, frankly, is a lot easier than the very uncomfortable vulnerability of admitting, maybe I've got a little bit of blame to shoulder myself. Bernay goes on to relate this, this lecture of hers, to, or this illustration to how we oftentimes blame and why we blame, and really how counterproductive blame is in the, in the scope of a relationship and getting along with one another. This morning, we're continuing this series we started last week called Family Friction. This is part two of four in that series. And the reason we're talking about family friction is because this is supposed to be a family-filled time of year, is it not? That's on all the Hallmark movies, that's on all the cards, we talk about family all the time during Christmas time, and for some people, getting together with family is great, it's awesome, but for other people, it's really challenging, because with family comes stress and becomes hurtful memories of words said long ago or things done that have gone unapologized for, and, and sometimes there's a lot of stress and a lot of hardship that comes along with being around family this time of year, and even if it's not on a grand scale, we all probably have a little bit of friction with the members of our family. But throughout this series, the theme that we continually are reminded of is God's grace can go a long, long way in helping us survive hard holidays. And today, we're going to humble ourselves a little bit as we talk about blame and how oftentimes we might blame people for our family friction when, much like Bernay and her cup of coffee, it might not necessarily be all their fault. We may have a little bit of blame to shoulder ourselves. So to guide us in this rather humbling conversation, we're going to be looking at the life of a man named Jacob, and his story starts in Genesis chapter 25. So if you have your Bibles, I want to encourage you to open those to Genesis chapter 25. If you don't have your Bibles, you can follow along on the screens to the side, or you can download the YouVersion Bible app on your mobile device, and you can follow along there. That's what I'll be doing this morning. So Genesis chapter 25 is where we're going to be, and we're just going to start off with kind of a hard pill to swallow. Here is something, we're just going to get right into the thick of it. Seldom is there only one party to blame when it comes to family friction. 
Now, there are some instances where one person is entirely to blame, instances of abuse and things, that's not your fault, somebody else made that choice. But in most instances, when it comes to arguments or frustrations or family friction, there is seldom, seldom, seldom just one party to blame. And Jacob's life helps us to see that as he lives out his relationship with his brother. You see, Jacob was a twin, and he was an instigator almost from the start. His brother Esau was born minutes before him, but Jacob wasn't going to be outdone. As he was being born, he reached out and he grabbed onto his brother's heel. In fact, Jacob in Hebrew, it roughly translates to heel grabber. So literally, he grabbed heels. But in Hebrew culture, that's an idiom. It's a figure of speech for somebody who's a deceiver. Kind of like today, if somebody can't keep a secret, we call them a big mouth. That's kind of what Jacob's name means. It means deceiver. He's literally a heel grabber. And that name would set the course for the rest of his life. Because Jacob, time and time again, is going to prove himself to be a bit of a weasel. He deceives. He swindles. He misdirects. He's just, he kind of instigates problems. And we see that in an incident that happens early on in his life in Genesis chapter 25 verse 29. It goes like this. Once when Jacob was cooking some stew, Esau, his brother, came in from the open country famished. He said to Jacob, quick, let me have some of that red stew. I'm famished. And that's why he's also called Edom. Edom means red, red stew. He had red hair. This guy's just red. Verse 31, Jacob replied, first sell me your birthright. Look, I'm about to die, Esau said. What good is a birthright to me? But Jacob said, swear to me first. And so he swore an oath to him, selling his birthright to Jacob. And then Jacob gave Esau some bread and some lentil stew. And he ate and he drank, and then he got up and left. And so Esau despised his birthright. So in this culture, the oldest child would receive double the inheritance of the other kids. So in this case, there were two sons. The inheritance would be split up into three parts. Jacob would get a third, and Esau would get two-thirds. That's what's referred to as the birthright here. And so Jacob, he sees an opportunity to acquire for himself some pretty significant wealth from his brother. His brother is famished. Esau's a bit of an outdoorsman. He's rugged. He likes to hunt. He comes in exhausted. He says, I just want some stew. I'm going to fall over dead. And Jacob says, oh, I'll give you the stew, but first, swear to me your share of the inheritance. It's kind of an opportunistic thing that Jacob does here. It kind of takes advantage of his brother. And we get the impression that Esau's maybe not the brightest crayon in the box here either, okay? But Jacob, he's saying, just give me this. And he takes advantage of the situation. Again, he's kind of a weasel, a little bit of a swindler. And he kind of just pulls, didn't really pull one over, but he takes advantage of his brother in this situation. And this is just one of several instances that's going to cause friction in this family, and particularly in this relationship between Jacob and Esau. And it's tempting to look at this story and to blame Jacob for all of it, because he's kind of a jerk. It would be easy to point and say, look at what you did, it was a mean thing you did to your brother, this is your fault. A lot of times, it's just easier to blame one person. Unfortunately, life doesn't always work out the easy way, or it doesn't always make sense when we look at it through the lens of reality. You know, for example, my wife and I, we had this argument just a few weeks ago. I was in the kitchen, I was doing dishes, she had just finished Levi's bath, and so she was taking a break in the living room, and she said, how do you turn the TV on? Now, this is a reasonable question, we had a TV go out, and so we had one in the basement from when we moved, and we just put it up on the wall, and so it was a fairly new TV for her. But what made the question kind of puzzling to me was on this TV, there is one and only one button. It's right on the front. It's a circle. It's got the power symbol on it. So when she says, how do you turn the TV on, my response was, push the power button. I thought that that was somewhat self-explanatory. 
But that's what made this situation kind of confusing to me because then she says, which one? Which, which one? There's one button. You just got to push the one button on there. And I, and I thought to myself, I'm like, okay, is there a clearer way I can say this? Can I communicate this in a different way? But the reality was, no, there's just one button. So I said the same thing. I said, push the power button. And again, she said, which one? What, what do you mean, which, which one? There's one button. Just roll the dice and push it, lady. Like, I don't understand why this is so complicated. And we actually got into a little bit of a tiff because we just kept saying the same thing back and forth. Push the power button. Which one? The power button. Now, she was being kind of obnoxious, right? That's how I perceived it. I was in the kitchen, minding my own business. She just keeps asking this ridiculous question. This argument's her fault. It's easy to blame just one person when it comes to family friction. The reality is, however, it is seldom only one party's fault. We look at Jacob and Esau. Yes, Jacob swindled his brother. Yes, he instigated and was guilty of most of the problems. But even the passage says, so Esau despised his birthright. Esau was kind of careless. His family heritage, his inheritance, both religious and monetary, it didn't really seem to matter that much to him. And with his carelessness, he sold this birthright and he continued, or he contributed rather, to this family friction. He had some blame to shoulder as well. Was Jacob the main perpetrator? Sure. But it's not entirely his fault. And so it was with my wife and I. Because I got tired of this back and forth of which button, the power button, which button. I walked into the living room and I saw her holding a universal remote in her hand. And then everything clicked. Because remember, I just put this TV up on the wall. I hadn't had time to program it into the remote yet. And there's like a thousand buttons on this thing. And none of them were going to turn it on anyway. So of course she kept asking, which one am I supposed to push? Now, did she help the situation by continually asking the same question over and over? No. But did I help the situation by just answering with the same answer over and over? No. There was plenty of blame to go around in this whole friction and in this tiff. And so it is with our families. If we just take a step back and we remove ourselves from the emotion and from the proximity, a lot of times what we're going to see is that there isn't just one person to blame for this argument or this misunderstanding or this conflict that we're involved in. Now, maybe we were the main perpetrator like Jacob, or maybe we had a smaller role to play like Esau. Maybe it was, I, I said something a little too harshly, more harshly than I intended. Maybe it was a tone of voice in which I said it in. Maybe it was a facial expression. Maybe my anger showed a little more than I realized, or maybe my words, they stung a little more than I intended. Maybe if I take a step back and I, and I look at this a little more objectively, I might see this isn't just my brother or sister, my, my uncle, my aunt, my mom. My, this isn't just somebody else's fault. I probably had a contribution to make here too, because seldom is it just one party responsible when it comes to family friction. And seeing this and recognizing it in our lives it requires us to assume a very humble posture. And that's really the key to this whole message. That's what's at the heart of it here this morning. Humility. Humility and humbling ourselves is the first step toward healing family friction. And that's true of any relationship, really, but we're in the context of family here today. Humbling ourselves is the first step toward healing family friction. We see that in Jacob's story as well. 
Jacob, he's going to continue in his ways as an instigator and, and a swindler and a deceiver and a heel grabber. You know, he, he's going to come up to this, this definitive moment in his life where his dad is about to pass away. and His dad's name is Isaac. And, and Isaac, he wants to bless his sons before he leaves this world. And understand something about blessing here. You know, we might say bless you, or we might say, say good luck or well wishes or something in our culture. And they're words, they're sentiment. But in this ancient Hebrew culture, a blessing was a little more finite than that. They weren't just words of well wishes and good luck. Like these were, these were limited resources almost. These words had power. Like if I were to bless one person, I couldn't then give the same blessing to somebody else. That would be like, like making a ham sandwich and eating it on Thursday and then Friday saying, you know what, that was a great sandwich, I'm going to eat it again. It doesn't work that way, does it? Once that sandwich is gone, it's gone. And so it is with blessings as well. And that's what makes this story so interesting. You see, Jacob, he wants to take his brother's blessing because Esau, he's the oldest, he's dad's favorite. He knows he's going to get the better blessing. And so Jacob, he dresses up like his brother and his dad, he can't see real well. And so he fools him and actually receives Esau's blessing. So now Jacob's not only stolen his brother's inheritance, he's also stolen his father's blessing. He just keeps taking and taking and taking from his brother. Understandably, Esau is so mad, he says, Jacob, as soon as dad's dead, I'm going to kill you. And not like in a figurative kind of way, like literally, I will bathe my hands in your blood, murder you. And Jacob knows he can do it because Esau is a big, hairy man's man. And so Jacob, he's scared. He runs off. He goes in a far-off uh, land to live with his uncle. Twenty years go by. Jacob continues in this pattern of life, deceiving, weaseling, and so on. And the day comes where God says, Jacob, it's time to go home. And Jacob says, God, uh, if I go home, Esau, Esau's going to kill me. And God says, we'll see. I need you to trust me, though. It's time to go home. And so Jacob, he packs up, he has two wives, he packs them up, he has two concubines, he packs them up, he has 11 sons, he packs them up, all of his sheep, all of his herds, and they head off back toward his homeland. And as they're getting closer, Jacob sends this messenger ahead. He says, go tell my brother that I'm coming, I'm not coming to make war, I'm not coming to claim land, <clears throat> I'm just coming to live in the homeland again. And the messenger goes, and when he comes back, he says, Esau's on his way. And he's bringing 400 men with him. Now, like three or four guys, that's a welcoming committee. Like, that's a party. You can expect that to be a good, warm reception. 400 guys, though, that's a platoon. And you can expect there to be bloodshed when 400 guys are on the move. And understandably, Jacob is terrified. And so he comes up with this plan. He starts sending wave after wave of gifts. He sends herds of cattle and flocks of sheep. And he just inundates Esau with generosity, trying to pacify his anger. And the night before, these two, these two groups are about to meet on the road. This is what happens. If you want to skip ahead a little bit to Genesis chapter 33, verse 22. It says, That night Jacob got up and took his two wives, his two female servants, and his eleven sons, and crossed the ford of the Jabbok, which is a river. And after they had sent them across the stream, he sent over all his possessions. And so Jacob was left alone, and a man wrestled with him till daybreak. Now I want to point something out here. <clears throat> it says that Jacob, he sent his two wives across the river, and then he sent his two concubines across the river, and then he sent his 11 sons across the river, and all of his stuff and all of his animals across the river, meaning that Jacob was left on the other side of the river. Here's what this means. It means in the morning... When these two groups meet head on, Jacob is going to be tucked way back in the back, safe and sound, 
behind all these other people. He's got a whole family of human shields in front of him. Like I said, Jacob is kind of a weasel. He's not exactly a stand-up man, and what we see here is pretty typical of Jacob's character. But something happens on this night. We read just a hint of it. It says, so Jacob was left alone, and, and a man wrestled with him till daybreak. And, and I wish we had time to really get into the nuts and bolts of this encounter, because it, it's so central to his story. But our time this morning just, it kind of condenses what we can talk about. So we'll summarize. This man, this assailant, is not just a man, but it's God. And literally, Jacob wrestles with God all night long. And it's kind of indicative of his whole life, really. I mean, Jacob has wrestled with God from day one. He was never the man he was meant to be. He deceived and he swindled and he weaseled and he took advantage of people. Jacob's been wrestling with God his whole life. But in this night, it's a very literal, direct encounter. And Jacob wrestles and he wrestles all night long. And as the sun's coming up, Jacob continues and insists on wrestling. And then God touches his hip and knocks it out of socket. And Jacob is humbled. He's weakened. He has no choice but to submit. And he says to this being, because he comes to realize real quick, if somebody touches your hip and it pops out of socket, this is not some man. Jacob realizes real quick that this is God. And he says, give me a blessing. And God does bless him. He says, your name is Jacob, right? Not anymore. You are no longer deceiver. You are no longer after this night heel grabber. Your new name is Israel. Because you wrestled with God. And overcame. And that doesn't mean, Jacob, this is some sort of victorious name. You beat God in a wrestling match. No, God gave him this name so that he would always remember what happened that night. You wrestled and were humbled. And this encounter, it becomes the crux of Jacob's entire life. His, he is an entirely different man after this encounter. And we see that as we keep reading. If you look at chapter 33, verse 1, it says, Jacob looked up. And there was Esau coming with his 400 men. And so he divided the children among Leah, his wife, Rachel, his wife, and the two female servants. And he put the female servants and their children in front, then Leah and her children next, then Rachel and Joseph in the rear. And he himself went on ahead and bowed down to the ground seven times as he approached his brother. So this is a very different lineup than what we read previously. Previous, Jacob was way back in the back and all of his family was in the front but now his family's in the back and Jacob is where he should be at the front of his family leading them as they encounter Esau but when they meet he, he doesn't intend to fight and he doesn't intend to swindle or steal or deceive instead what we see Jacob doing is something he's never done at any point in his life he bows in humility and submission and respect to his brother and not just once, but seven times. It's just this constant parade of humility as he approaches. This is a very different man than we've seen previous to this. We keep reading. Look at verse 4. It says, But Esau ran to meet Jacob and embraced him. He threw his arms around his neck and kissed him, and they wept. And then Esau looked up and saw the women and children. Who are these with you? He asked. And Jacob answered, They are the children God has graciously given your servant. Your servant is what he calls himself now. This is a guy who spent his entire life trying to be the smartest guy in the room. Trying to be the guy on top. Trying to make sure that he was in an advantageous situation. If he had to swindle, deceive, whatever, to get there, he did it. Jacob, he was a shark. 
And now, he's not a shark. He says, I am your servant. He humbles himself before his brother yet again. Look at verse 8. We skip down a little bit. Esau asked, what's the meaning of all these flocks and herds that I met? To find favor in your eyes, my Lord. Again, very respectful uh, address. But Esau said, I already have plenty, my brother. Keep what you have for yourself. No, please, said Jacob, if I found favor in your eyes, accept this gift from me. For to see your face is like seeing the face of God now that you've received me favorably. Please accept the present that was brought to you. For God has been gracious to me and I have all I need. And because Jacob insisted, Esau accepted it. There's this very humble gesture that, that Jacob makes. And there's even more going on here than what we first notice on the surface. In verse 11, when Jacob says, please accept the present that was brought to you. The word that's translated there is present. The Hebrew word that was used in the original text. It's an interesting word. It comes from the same word as, as what we would translate as blessing. The same word, present, blessing. As in the blessing that Jacob once stole years and years ago. What's happening here is more than just Jacob giving a gift. It's almost as if he's saying, years ago, I stole a blessing from you. But now I want to make amends. I want to give a blessing to you. This is an entirely different man than the one that we saw earlier. Jacob has undergone a, a, a tremendous transformation of character and heart here. He was this shark, but now he's this very humble man who just wants to make amends. And it's through that humility and through the change that God has worked in Esau that this family friction that's been going on for decades seems to come to a close and healing is made possible and reconciliation is made possible. Not because Jacob insisted that Esau was to blame or Esau insisted that Jacob was to blame, but because this man humbled himself and said, I want to make amends. And the same is true with our lives as well. If we want to be the guy on top, if we want to win the argument, if we want to insist on being right and being in the position of advantage and power, we are going to perpetuate and cause family friction. But if we want to see healing in our families and we want to see reconciliation made possible, that will require a very different posture. It will require us to be humble, to extend an olive branch, to be the one who takes the first step, who initiates the conversation. Because humility is key to reconciliation. That, that's a theme we see throughout Scripture, but no more profoundly than in the story of Jesus. It's almost like this character and this quality is something that God just wanted to hammer into us again and again and again because humility is so key and crucial to relationships. Not just our relationship with each other, but our relationship with Him. In fact, God demonstrated the power of humility through the gospel story. He shows us what humility can accomplish. If you want to talk about friction, we don't need to look any further than in the bathroom mirror. Because every single one of us in here had caused friction in our relationship with God through what we call sin. Through those times that we, we disregarded who God called us to be or we chose to walk a different path than what God created us for. You know, he didn't always intend for us to be like Jacob, these swindlers or deceivers. He didn't intend for us to be like Esau, prone to violence and prone to, 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 to anger. Instead, we choose these paths ourselves and we distance ourselves from God. But he wasn't content to leave us as wanderers. He pursued us, not because he had to, but because he wanted to. He humbled himself and pursued us by sending Jesus into this world. When we read Philippians chapter 2, we read that Jesus was equal with God in every way, in power and in majesty and in glory and in might. 
in praise and in worship. And yet he humbled himself. He stepped out of heaven into this world and he put on flesh. That's what we celebrate this Christmas season. Have you ever stopped to consider like, like what a transition like that would be like? How many of you are, are air-conditioned people? You like air-conditioning? Okay, yeah, I'm what we call indoorsy. Some guys are outdoorsy. I very much like air conditioning. And I think the transition from heaven to earth would be like being in an air-conditioned room and being, you know, just feeling great. Everything's well with the world and as it should be. And then you have to step outside your front door on an August day when the humidity is like 100%. And you just feel that wave of disappointment come over your body. You felt that before? you just like, oh, this is the worst. I, I imagine that's kind of what the transition from heaven to earth would be like, just on an exponentially worse level. And yet Jesus chose this. He chose to enter into this world and walk it for 33 years, confined to all the limitations of mortality. But even beyond this, he chose to lay down his life so that our sins could be forgiven. We were the ones that had wrecked our relationship with God, and yet Jesus, he heals it through the power of his blood. He didn't have to do that. He chose to do that. That was beneath his station as, as divine, and yet he willingly took that on himself. Time and time again, he humbles himself so that our friction with God could be healed. Humility is key to that story, and he models for us the humility that is necessary for healing the family friction in our lives and our relationships today. Humility is, is a powerful, powerful posture to assume because it makes reconciliation possible and it makes healing an option. And so I want to encourage you this, this holiday season as you gather with family and as you gather with friends and neighbors and, and so on, you're going to have moments where there is friction. There are going to be memories of those words said long ago or there's going to be memories of that thing that was done long ago that nobody ever apologized for. There's going to be those family feuds. There's going to be that annoying thing that your neighbor always does that they won't apologize for or quit. And there's going to be a thousand different reasons for friction in our relationships. But I want to encourage you to take a step back. To humble yourself. To realize that Maybe this isn't all one person's fault. That maybe blame is not the best course of action. Maybe I have some friction that I'm responsible for too. And when we recognize that and we realize that, take the step to make amends. That humble action that we see in Jacob. Put that into practice in our own lives. And see if healing and reconciliation doesn't come from that as we start to heal this family friction. Now, some of us in here, we may be feeling a different kind of friction. We may be feeling that distance with God. Like there's something standing in the way between the two of us. And I want you to know there is. It's sin. And it's only when we humble ourselves and we come to God and say, I need healing. I need the power of the gospel that, that only you can provide. I need Jesus in my life. Only then is that obstacle going to be removed and that relationship healed. And this morning, I want to encourage you, if that is a step you need to take, if you need to accept Christ into your life, we're going to sing a song in just a minute. I'm going to be in the back of the room, and I would love to talk with you and pray with you about Jesus, about accepting him into your life, about baptism and the healing that comes through that. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for today. Family's tough. It's messy. There are a hundred different things that could go wrong, a hundred different ways we could be offended, and the friction could creep into our relationships and, and ruin this gift that you've given us. But Father, I pray that we would be a humble people, 
that we would take a hard look at ourselves, that we would see maybe how we have contributed in big ways or small ways, that we would seek to make amends, and that through these humble actions, Father, you would bring healing in these relationships. I pray that what may start as a, a small act may snowball into a great force of healing in our families. I pray that Jesus would be held high as reconciliation just sweeps over our, our families and our community. And Father, we just ask that you would empower us for this goal because you've shown us how significant and how possible reconciliation is through the gospel. You've healed us through your son and through his humble act of service and gift on the cross. And so we praise you now, Jesus. We thank you for your example and pray that we would do likewise and follow. It's in your name we pray. Amen.